Welcome to the Game Sports Show, powered by the Game Entertainment and Media, or known as TGEM. This is a special edition upload presented by Little Caesars Pizza. Little Caesars has three locations within Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, and obviously many nationwide. It is the largest carryout pizza chain internationally, and a brief yet simple way to describe Little Caesars Pizza is it's convenient, cost-effective, and delicious. You can order online through its user-friendly online pizza portal. So what are you waiting for? Get to ordering. The Game Sports Show and TGEM thanks Little Caesars Pizza, in particular within Canada and Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario for its support. Oh, and don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe the Game Sports Show on Facebook and Instagram. In particular, make sure you catch the video upload of this show on the TGEM network platform within the Game Entertainment and Media YouTube channel, a YouTube channel that is a hub-based platform for you to enjoy podcasts of all kinds. Now let's get to the episode, our special edition upload where you have the opportunity to hear from an athlete going through all the tales and experiences that you will not want to miss. This edition is hosted by David McCaig Jr. with co-hosts Brendan Brooks, Alex Parr, and Scott Nason. Booyah, and it's time for the Game Sports Show. It is your host, David McCaig Jr., bringing you another special edition upload powered by the Game Entertainment Media and sponsored by Little Caesars Pizza. Getting to the co-host who's joining yours truly for the show. He's a frequent co-host with me on these Little Caesar special edition uploads. He's a part of the Game Sports Show and Game Entertainment Media family as a general sports analyst. You hear his voice on these special edition uploads as well as our top shelf edition news shows, in particular, hockey and video expert, and those videos are top notch the one and only alex parr my friend how are you they normally hear me but now they have to be putting up with seeing me for the next 45 minutes <laughs> dave i don't i don't know what you're doing to your audience here i don't know i think we'll gain following especially because your set is absolute fire in the background there and i know our guest ha- has agreed to that and getting to our guest <laughs> certainly very excited this is a treat for sure, uh, for the Games Sports Show and our listeners here today, and getting to our Little Caesar Special Edition guest, you may have observed uh, the title of the show, and if you don't know who he is, well, please let me know so I can come knock some sense into you. He played in over <laughs> 1,000 professional hockey games, totaling to close to 1,090 points in his career, also had over 1,800 penalty minutes in his career, had 77 playoff games, tallying 79 total points, played major junior for the Moose Jaw Warriors, drafted 8th round, 166th overall, the 1987 NHL entry draft to the Calgary Flames. In the NHL, he played most of his career with the Flames and other teams such as the Colorado Avalanche, New York Rangers, Chicago Blackhawks as well. He is a one-time Stanley Cup champion in 1989 with the Calgary Flames, Olympic gold medalist with Canada, World Junior medalist, a Canada Cup champion, EIHL champion, silver medalist at the World Junior Championship, or the World Championship, rather. He is a seven-time All-Star in the NHL. Not a big deal. Also, this hockey player, in terms of points, is in the top 100 of all times. 61st fantastic heck this guy also played some baseball involved in the clothing line did the battle of the blades in 2010 and on top of all this he has a best-selling author with his autobiography playing with fire which was released in 2009 and fun fact this is one of the only books i've ever read in my life (laughs) he was also a recipient of the aspire award in 2013 he gives back to the community in regards to his hockey He's a singer-songwriter and have majorly developed his career as a public speaker post-hockey. Did you get all that? I doubt it. And I could have went into so much more with this guy's amazing <laughs> career on the ice, but also his influence and accomplishments off the ice. But let's introduce him before we run out of time on this show. And one of my favorite hockey players of all time, a true legend, the one and only Theo Fleury. Theo, excited to have you by here for the show today. 
Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, that's that's a long intro. <laughs> yeah, that's all we have time for today. Thanks so much for tuning in. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that'll be today's show. Thank you, everybody, and for everyone for coming by. But no, I like to, myself and Alex and our usual co-host, Brendan Brooks, we like to jump into like a post-opener, which is kind of a loose-ended question to start. Now, before we dive into those topics, uh, there's obviously a lot of prized possessions that you have, okay, from jerseys to gifts, uh, memories, etc. And when mm-hmm. I've seen interviews with you prior, there's always been three jerseys that pop up that are your yeah. prized <laughs> possessions, okay? Uh, yeah. Now, you have your Stanley Cup championship jersey. I believe the other one's the Olympic gold medal jersey from, uh, from Salt Lake. Yeah. Uh, uh, which is one of my favorite games of all time. I remember my uncle and myself and my father going absolutely nuts downstairs in the basement. And then the vintage 91 Canada Cup jerseys. Now, I'm going to throw you on the spot. If you had to choose one jersey, one out of those three, which one would be your favorite and your top pick? <laughs> <laughs> well, my favorite jersey I ever wore was uh, the 94 lockout. I played in Tampere, Finland. Okay. For uh, for them. And uh, my number was 95.7, <laughs> which was the radio station that actually paid my salary while I was there for a month. And, uh, um, you know, I love the European style jerseys because it's just straight advertising all over the place. Yeah. Uh, I had a big chicken on the front of my jersey and uh yeah it was uh it was one of those really cool experiences uh uh cuz I remember what the hell we we got locked out I think right after training camp which was like the middle of September yeah and uh and so I it was like it was like the middle of November and I called my agent and I said, you know what, man, my liver needs a break because all we were doing, we're skating every day and then drinking at night, you know? <laughs> and uh, I said, I don't care where, where, where I go. I said, I just need to get out of Calgary. I said, I'll go play anywhere, wherever you want. So like half an hour later, he calls me back and he says, you want to go to Finland? And I'm like, Sure. And uh, I went over there and uh, I don't know. Do you remember a guy named Yanni Oyenen who played for the Devils? Yes, I do. And he I'm- was on my team. And then there was another guy named Timo Utala who played for the, the Buffalo Sabres for a while. And they were the two guys, two NHL guys that were, were on the team there. And uh, I had the absolute time of my life. It was okay. so awesome to go and experience hockey in a different country and uh you know the Finnish league is a it's an unbelievable league there's so many great players and uh you know all the Finnish guys were over there Solani and Curry were over there and and uh Yerke Lume was over there and Yuri Lettinen and all those guys so yeah it was it was a lot of fun to to be over there so that was one of my favorite jerseys I've ever worn but if I had to pick one of those three Oh man, it's too hard. It's (laughs) too hard to, to pick because they were, you know, all three of those experiences were, you know, individual, you know, in, in themselves. But, but I would have to say that, you know, the 89 Stanley cup Jersey is probably the one that, you know, that I cherish the most, you know, what did you find was uh, the biggest difference playing in Finland compared to playing in North America? Well, the ice surface obviously is bigger. 
um, which was great for me because I was still, yeah I was gonna say was still fast back then so it was it was good um, but uh, they play a really uh, they play a very defensive type of game over there you know it's more like soccer almost you know sort of it's a it's a puck control ball control you know game um but uh um you know the nhl is obviously way more physical right you know because of because of the ice surface and the size of the guys um but uh i would say those are the two biggest you know differences i saw between and it was weird coming back and you know stepping on stepping on the ice again for the first time i'm like we play in a fucking shitty small (laughs) you know (laughs) <laughs> you know it was weird you know because because it's 200 by 100 oh. so there's 15 extra feet on each side like width of the rank right so um i wish that i had that in the nhl with those big dumb slow defensemen that i was playing against at the time right because usually you, you know in our era, there was a lot of hooking and holding and grabbing and all that. So I could have used that extra, you know, 15 feet uh, width, to, you know, to get by those defensemen without getting hooked or hold or whatever. So, yeah, those big guys, you know, when I think of some of the old, uh, not, I shouldn't say old timers because that's not the right word, but the, the ones that I, we're, we're old timers. <laughs> vintage, vintage. Vintage. I like that. Oh. Vintage. You should see us when we all get together. We don't talk about hockey, we talk about how stiff we are, and <laughs> arthritis, and, you know, neck problems, back problems, knee problems, you know. Guys are getting their hips replaced, their knees replaced, you yeah. know. So, see when you mentioned a couple of those other guys from overseas, I saw Alex's head go on because you know what, Theo, you know, I'm a '91. Alex is a '96. Seven. Uh, you're a '97. Seven. Seven. '97. Youngin. So you're a young pup, okay? So mm-hmm. you know, I I got the luxury of growing up to watch guys like Theo, Gary Roberts, and have to see all that. Those. Uh, those were certainly uh, legends, part. So, so you know you you you're getting a real treat today, okay? And that, yeah. the way the players are now, they're great. There's there's a lot of stars, of course, but you know some of those teams back in the '90s and the thousands, late '80s, they would have uh, I think cleaned up a couple of these smaller teams. But nonetheless, Theo, I know they don't uh, make hockey players like they used to. That's no, for they sure. do not. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll go back to hockey. I wanted to kind of transition a little bit, kind of call an audible and go with a little bit of the off ice uh, yeah. to start. And then we'll go back to, of course, hockey. There's a lot of memories you like to get into. And sure. just so little time, though. There's never enough time when it comes I to know. the podcast. Just like, you know. Uh, but, you know, going to that for a second, firstly, right off the stick, if you will, going a little pun, your Instagram. You had a post on May 14th, 2021, Brianne Brown quote, where you said, when we own store, when we own our stories, we avoid being trapped as characters and stories someone else is telling. And this, this caught my eye as she is an empower, she has an empowering short video action. I don't know if you had the chance to, uh, to check it out, but empathy versus sympathy. Yeah. Uh, fantastic video. Uh, it's, it's, it's really short. I encourage everyone to take the three minutes and 35 seconds to check it out. And you mentioned in your Ted talk in Vancouver, individuals coming up to you after you wrote your book saying me too, yeah. and working with people every day that you're related to inside 
all this. And as a voice against trauma, mental health, the stigma, it must be something that assists you forward as someone who is a victor to have all this together. Yeah. Um, you know, it was interesting when, when I sat down to write the book, like it was for very selfish reasons at the beginning, you know, I just wanted to, you know, put all this stuff on paper, take one last look at it. But even, even at the beginning, when I sat down to write the book, like I only wanted to talk about my hockey career and uh, you know, fortunately, you know, I had a very skilled uh, ghost writer that, that uh, helped me, um, you know, tell the whole story. And, and early on in the process, you know, um, she made me feel safe and I trusted her. And then, and then it just started flowing. And then, you know, <laughs> four days before I was going to Toronto to launch this book, like I was fucking shitting in my pants. Like I was so scared and so afraid because I didn't know how all of you guys were going to react to what was in the book. Right. And, you know, I also knew that I was going to go do a whole bunch of media at the same time. And I knew that the me- the only thing the media would be interested in would be to re-victimize me as much as possible, right? But, you know, because I'm a smart and bright guy, uh, I spent those four days on my computer researching every single thing I could find on the subject of child sexual abuse. Cause I wanted to get a story of hope and healing and recovery, you know, out to the masses because I was getting this amazing opportunity to do that. Um, so sure enough, I, I show up in Toronto. I do like 300 interviews in the first four days that I'm there you know, I'm sitting on the big red couch with George and I'm doing Sportsnet, TSN, you know, all the major newspapers, magazines, morning radio shows, morning TV shows. And, you know, just like I predicted, the only thing they were interested in was the gory details of my sexual abuse. But because I had been interviewed, you know, thousands of times in my hockey career, I knew that I didn't have to answer the reporter's question, right? Directly. And so I had, <coughs> excuse me, I made, you know, I made a point of having five main points in every interview that I want to get, get across to bring more awareness to the subject that sexual abuse is, you know, one of the biggest epidemics on the planet. And so I, I achieved my goal. I got this great story out there, all this stuff. And, uh, and so the next thing on the itinerary was the first book signing. And, you know, my expectations for the book were really low. I didn't think anybody was going to read this book. And I thought I'd show up and sign 10 books and go to the next town and sign 10 books, so on and so forth. Well, I show up at the biggest Indigo chapter store in all of Canada, downtown Toronto and Young Street. And I walk through the front doors of the bookstore and there's 400 people standing in line with my book. And I'm like, what the fuck are all you guys doing here? You know, because that was not my, you know, that was not my expectation. Yeah. So I sit down at the book table and, uh, you know, I start signing books and out of the corner of my eye, I spot this guy in line. And he's got my book clutched against his chest and his face is buried in the floor and his sweatpants are dirty, his t-shirts ripped, his hair is all greasy. And I'm like, hmm, you know, I wonder what's up with this guy. 
So I follow him all the way in the line. He gets to the front of the line, puts the book on the table, looks me in the eye, and says two words. Me too. Me too. And, you know, I had no idea why I wrote this book, right? And, you know, this guy basically showed up at the book signing to deliver a spiritual message of two simple words and basically say, you know, this is what the rest of your life is going to look like. Because when I retired from the game, I had no idea what the rest of my life was look look like. Because all I had was a grade 12 diploma from Vanier Collegiate in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. And I had more than half my life left to live. And I had no idea what the rest of my life was going to look like. And that guy showed up and told me, this is this is what the rest of your life is going to look like. And then, you know, and then I went on the book tour and I absolutely got run over by people, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 people were coming up at every book signing and saying, Hey man, I read your book. You told my story. Me too. You know, Hey, I saw your documentary. You know, you told my story, me too. And, and, you know, I've been doing this now for almost 13 years and it's still every day somebody's emailing me or private messaging me on, on social media and telling me their story or, you know, saying, hey, I read your book or I read an article or I saw your documentaries or whatever it is. And so, uh, you know, and then, you know, and then, you know, I became the poster boy for sexual abuse and I was like, holy shit, I didn't want this to happen. Right. You know, and And so about, I would say, five years into the journey, I switched from sexual abuse and just called it trauma in general. And when I switched to trauma, then I brought the whole entire 7.5 billion people, you know, into the conversation. Because I think trauma affects all of us, you know, at some point in our lives, And then trauma has a direct impact on mental illness and trauma has a direct impact on addiction issues. Right. And, and, you know, COVID-19 isn't the biggest epidemic on the planet. Trauma, mental health and addiction is the biggest epidemic on the planet. And, uh, you know, there's so much stigma attached to, uh, you know, all three of those subjects And we've done a really poor job of creating safe places where people can sort of unload these, these horrific stories that they carry around with them. Uh, That's why we're seeing, you know, especially during COVID, you know, a spike in mental illness, a spike in, in suicides, a spike in opioid overdoses and opioid deaths and, and all of that. And so, um, you know, I would say of the 13 years, this has been my busiest year. This has been the most challenging year. Um, it's been the biggest learning curve, uh, all of those things. And so, uh, you know, I feel very grateful and very fortunate to, that people do trust in me to uh, seek me out and, and uh, you know, tell me their stories. Well said, Alex. Now, what sorts of advice where, let's say, you know, I'm seeing Dave struggling on a day-to-day basis. What, what can I do? What's the first kind of step that I can take without maybe crossing a line that I shouldn't? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, honesty is, is always a great approach, you know, 
say something like, Hey man, I see that you're struggling. I see that. Um, and I just want you to know that, you know, when you're ready to deal with all of this, you know, that, that here's my, my number, you can call me anytime, uh, of the day and, uh, I'll be here for you, you know? Now, is this something that after you kind of opened up about your experiences, you saw, I know you said a lot of people coming up to you in line, but are former players trying to talk to you about things like this and said, hey, like, this is something that I wasn't comfortable with in the locker room, but you're kind of making it more of an open, open book for us now. Yeah, I would say that there's still a lot of guys out there that struggle with, you know, opening up. They got to be tough, right? That's the, well, that's we're, the yeah, we're, we're sort of all old school kind of guys and, and, uh. Um, but you know, the key to all this is vulnerability, right? And, you know, I told my story in a very vulnerable way. And I think that's why it had such a huge impact was because I was as honest as I was. And, uh, you know, there was really not a whole lot of fluff in that book. It was real. It was in your face and, and every page, (laughs) you know, uh, was a page turner, um, And I just laid it all out there, you know, and, and a lot of people connected with, with that vulnerability. Right. And, uh, and to me, you know, vulnerability creates safety. And then when you have safety, that's when the magic of healing happens for people is when they feel safe, you know, and as an advocate and an activist in this space, you know, I fight stigma every single day of my life is about stigma, you know, and, uh, and, you know, especially in the mental health space, you know, we've, we've, we've done a really poor job of how we approach mental illness because most mental illness campaigns start with one in five Canadians suffer. And I'm like, why are we shaming the one person who has mental illness? And in my experience and in my research in the last 13 years, it's five and five. It's all of us. Everybody. And if we're going to tackle the biggest epidemic on the planet, it's going to take all of us, you know? And, and so we're adding to the stigma by making that statement, you know? And basically we're telling the other four out of five, you guys are okay, you know, when they're really not. You know, and, uh, and so, um, you know, I'm trying to change the conversation every day that, you know, that mental illness is a part of, part of everyone's life. And, uh, but here's, here's the deal. And the reasons why, the reasons why it's at this, uh, you know, these epidemic proportions is, you know, the mental health system is completely run over, right? And there's not enough skilled people in the space for the amount of people that need help. And so, you know, as an advocate, I try to create other advocates. So I take people through their journey, get them well, get them functioning. And then what happens to them? Then they become advocates and then they want to help other people. And so I really, I'm a big, big proponent of peer-to-peer counseling, you know, is if you have the experience and you've come out on the other side and you're doing well, you know, it's time for you to step in and help somebody else achieve what you achieved. Right. And so, you know, that's what we need more of. 
couldn't couldn't agree more. You know what? And honestly, outside of doing the business that I'm currently doing with the show and the business, I am in a human resources field and a management level. And there's a lot of things that I've been exposed to. And it, you said it right on the head there. The biggest uh, epidemic is the mental health. And, you know, listening to your tape, saying it flat out, like all the, uh, the footage I've seen from you over the years and reading the book, uh, you're raped over 150 times in a couple of years that you were in junior hockey. And you know what, it made me think of something to kind of bring forward to you where, you know, as a hockey player, outside of the, uh, the instances that happened over those couple of years, to lead to the next question here, as a hockey player, you were told, and experts always said, right, that you were too small, your size would hinder you to be successful in the NHL. And it turns out, you obviously proved them wrong in the best fucking way possible, okay? Mm-hmm. And you worked hard to be successful on the ice. Uh, is it fair to say that you went against the odds, you know, with being someone who was milliseconds away from suicide or... Uh, being someone who kept the guilt and anger inside and emotions inside to persevere by starting with the book to get your story out, go against the odds and then show courage by doing so with all that to now be at the stage that you are. Yeah. Well, pain, pain is the greatest motivator we have for change. Okay. And, you know, 16 years ago, you know, I had a fully loaded, loaded pistol in my mouth, ready to pull the trigger and end my life. Not because I wanted to die, but because I was exhausted from living in emotional pain and suffering for the majority of my life. And I tried everything on the planet to get rid of this thing and how I felt. And, you know, when I couldn't pull the trigger, you know, I actually chose to live. Okay. And when I chose to live, I had no fucking clue how to live life on life's terms, right? All I knew how to do was cope. And so I had to take that will to live and absolutely change absolutely every single thing about my life. Okay. And, you know, I got sober. What is it? Five, 5,743 days ago, I got sober and, And that started me down the road and started me down the path of healing and really taking a look at, you know, what happened. Right. And, and it was because I was in so much emotional pain that it was the catalyst for me to get better, to get well, because I didn't want to die. Right. And I knew I was going to die. If I kept drinking, if I kept doing drugs, if I kept hanging out with the people that I was hanging hanging around with, I knew I was going to die. And then this story would be a very tragic story, a tragic ending. And I didn't want that. I knew that I was better than that. And, and then the book opportunity came, went through that whole process. And then as I was out on the, on, on the speaking tour, I met this lady named Kim Barthel. And uh, um, in Winnipeg, of all places, you know, and we were both speaking at the same conference. And uh, um, and usually when I go to events, you know, I just sort of sit in my hotel room until it's my turn to go do my thing. And then I go do my thing and then I, you know, and then I go back to my room. But for some reason, uh, you know, I felt compelled to go listen to this, you know, this woman speak. And, uh, you know, and I didn't want to disrupt the conference or whatever. So I put on my best disguise 
And I snuck into the back of the room and I started to listen to this lady speak. And I was absolutely blown away at the information she was providing to the audience. And, and then she put two videos on the board, one of a healthy mom and baby relationship, and then one of an unhealthy mom and baby relationship. And I got triggered because my mom suffered through depression my whole entire childhood. And she was hooked on, you know, medication. And, uh, um, and as soon as she was done speaking, man, I, I bolted right down the middle of the aisle and, and I said to her, I said, Hey, you, I said, uh, you just changed my life. And I said, I think you'll be working with me for the rest of yours is what I said to her. And she was kind of, you know, taken aback. And, uh, you know, so that night I spoke and then her and I had dinner together. And I said to her, I said, you know, you and I had, I I said, uh, I had, I had such an amazing experience writing the first book that people are now asking me, what do I do now that I've told my story? What do I do? And I said to her, I said, would you be interested in writing a book with me? And without hesitation, she said, I would love to write a book with you. And so we sat down and wrote conversations with a rattlesnake and, and it was a four year conversation between the two of us where she was basically rewiring all of my trauma that happened to me and helping me understand it and, and, you know, all of these things. And so, um, you know, that second book that I wrote was a real game changer in my own personal uh, recovery and healing journey. And, uh, you know, I also got to hang around with one of the, you know, the smartest people on the planet, you know, and, uh, you know, I learned a lot from her that I use, you know, today, you know, to help other people. And, uh, and yeah, so that, that experience was incredible. And for for listeners listening to this right now, or maybe even watching this, uh, what sort of resources would you say that they, you know, say, Hey, you know what, maybe after listening to this, it's time to step up and and start speaking about this. What sort of resources would you direct them to? Well, you know, when you're trying to find somebody to tell your story to, you know, I think that person has to be someone outside of your sphere of influence, you know, um, because families don't deal with this shit very well, you know, they don't. And, you know, there, there are preachers, there are priests, there are ministers, that's their job is to listen to these kind of stories, right? So that's a good resource. Um, finding a group of people, um, you know, that are, you know, recovering from trauma is a, is a good place to go to. Because everybody understands there's no judgment. There's no, you know, everybody understands. And it's really about creating that safe space and that safe environment for you, right? And then, you know, healing is a three-step process. It's physical, it's emotional, and it's spiritual. And those are the three things that you need to work on, right? And and there are 10,000 different ways to do that, you know? And you just have to find your formula uh, that sort of keeps you sane one day at a time, right? Uh, But for me, um, 
you know, the spiritual aspect of recovery, I believe is, is one of the most important things because when I'm spiritually connected, I'm invincible, you know, and, uh, and that's what I always try to, you know, to teach is, you know, finding something greater than yourself that can restore you to some sort of sanity. Right. And, you know, for the last 10 years, you know, I've been on this spiritual journey, trying every possible, you know, religion, uh, spiritual practice, you know, you name it, I've, I've done it all. And now I've, now I have a, a really, you know, strong base, uh, which is my spirituality. And when I have a strong base of spirituality, then I can deal with the, the emotional and the physical, you know, part of the, of the healing that I need to do as well. You know, that is literally fantastic. And when you transitioned into the the second book that you did, that was the other thing I was going to dive into. And you know what, I'm going to encourage listeners, as I said, for people that don't, if people don't know who I am or people that do know me reading something is not a thing. I've never been a fan of like watching something opposed to (laughs) And when I actually read Theo's book and when I read it, it was in 2009, way when he came out, I was actually playing junior hockey and I upgraded it. We went to Boston for a tournament and I upgraded from business class to first class for a $60 fee. I never heard it the end of it from the boys when we were playing. <laughs> Let me tell you, for you. Uh, I, uh, I didn't have the money. It's my parents' money. I must say at the time. And I, I was actually reading the book and it was amazing. Uh, it was that. And then also for you to have that project to do the second book and also to do all the talks that you've done. Yeah. I've, I've watched the YouTube videos. I've seen them before. I've seen them the other day. I've, I've seen them. I've kept up with it. And everything that you did is always so empowering with that. And I encourage listeners to not only to speak out if there is something that in your life that you have to speak up about but also help those who are in need and also utilize resources and all of that make sure you check out all of theo's content i know you have a website as well and i know we don't have the time to really dive into all that as we transition to the on ice uh, kind of uh, tales before we conclude here Uh, but you have theoflurry.life of course so you have your instagram you have a podcast you have a blog you've said this on previous shows where you you know you have a radio you're you're on all these platforms that are available for people to hear your story and have right. a sense of encouragement to these, these podcasts are, have been amazing for, you know, doing a lot of the promotional stuff that I, you know, that I do. So I try to do as many uh, other podcasts as possible, right? Because you never know who is listening and who you're going to, you know, influence, you know? And so, you know, I always, I always encourage, you know, my former players and people that, you know, if you get asked to go on a podcast, go on a podcast, you know, they're, they're great. Uh, they're great for promoting whatever you're, you're doing. And, and uh, yeah, they're, they're a great resource. They are it's awesome. You know, I, I could say jokes as jokes aside, that wasn't my name or the, the Alex's name that just got you on the show. But You know, it's certainly everything that's amazing that you've brought into and, I encourage everyone to go research everything that you want, whatever platform that they can access to do so. Uh, transitioning to the ice now, and now there's topics. I know there's three main topics I know we're planning on getting into, and that's your Stanley Cup, of course, uh, your your legendary goal against the Oilers, and also uh, the 91 Canada Cup. 
And even if we can get inside to that punch up in, and I'm going to butcher this, Pusnetsny, I can't pronounce that. Pusnetsny. Thank you very much for pronouncing it for me. There's the <laughs> Nagano Olympic story I'd like to share with you. There's 20, the 2002 Salt Lake. There's so much. The attempt to come back. So we'll dive into what we can here uh, for the next uh, 10 minutes or so. Uh, so the one that I want to dive into first, I think this is the right one to kind of get a little bit of background with, is your Stanley Cup championship. Okay. Yeah. You, you, you win a cup in 88, 89. Uh, you were still young into the NHL at that current point. Your team was absolutely unbelievable. Dougie Gilmore, the killer. Uh, Lanny McDonald, Gary Roberts, uh, Mullen, Neuendike, Vernon. Like, who wasn't on that squad almost, it seems like. Uh, and, of course, you know, Leaf fans are listening. Doug Gilmore, one of the my best favorite Leafs of all time. Gary Roberts is actually one of my other favorite players of all time next to yourself, Theo. And Vincent LeCavalier, fun fact, is the other one. Uh, but besides that, Theo, you know, you mentioned in years ago back with George Strombolopoulos, and I'm happy that you mentioned us sitting on the couch with George, that the LA Kings that won the cup reminded you of that team. You mentioned they were strong. And is it fair that being a, a, despite being a successful team all year, that your team was actually just built for that playoff hockey as well? Yeah. Well, you know, Badger Bob Johnson came to Calgary – and, you know, they basically built that team to beat the Edmonton Oilers because they knew if they beat Edmonton that, you know, that would be their best chance to get to the Stanley Cup final. And, uh, you know, they, they did accomplish that feat in 86. You know, Steve Smith uh, shot the puck in his own net. Um, and uh, Calgary ended up losing to Montreal in 86. And so... Um, you know, when I got to Calgary in 1989, you know, I'd come with a pretty big resume from junior and, you know, I was leading the International Hockey League in scoring when I got to Calgary. And uh, basically, I was, uh, I was the fourth line centerman on the Stanley Cup, you know, winning team. And, uh, but it was a role that was really kind of easy for me to play. Because uh, I, you know, I wasn't expected to score. I didn't have to score. Um, you know, I played with two big oak trees on either side of me when, you know, Timmy Hunter and Brian McClelland. And, uh, you know, what was interesting was, you know, people don't realize this, that, you know, it was fun to play on the fourth line because I got to play against the other team's shitty fourth line. Okay. <laughs> All right. And, you know, it takes 16 wins to win a Stanley Cup. And um, our line in that run produced six game winning goals because we were playing against the other team's shitty fourth line, you know. And uh, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, when you have a solid team like that, you know, if the first three lines cancel each other out during the game, the big advantage is going to happen, you know, if you have a really awesome fourth line. And we had a really awesome fourth line. And sometimes Yuri Herdina, you know, was in and out of the lineup and, and played, you know, uh, on the left side as well. And he was a great, great player. Um, but that whole entire team, I'll tell you, I could not have been mentored by a better group of people you know, from top to bottom, you know, from the ownership group to Cliff Fletcher and Al Coates and Al McNeil and, 
you know, all the players and, you know, the staff was incredible. And, uh, you know, not only were we a great team, but, you know, top to bottom, the quality of human beings that we had um, was second to none. And uh, I think that's probably the biggest reason why we won was the quality of people, not the quality of play, you know. And, uh, you know, it was an unbelievable experience. Um, I still live in Calgary for that exact reason that, uh, you know, this is a great hockey town. Um, you know, we are treated, uh, very, very well here in Calgary being the one and only Stanley cup champion uh, in the 40 years that the flames have been in Calgary. So, uh, you know, um, and, and we have an amazing alumni group too. You know, we do lots of charity work and, and uh, lots of fun stuff together. So, and I think there's like nine of us that uh, played on that Stanley cup team who still live in Calgary. So. Hey man, as a Leafs fan, if you're saying to put Austin Matthews on the fourth line to give them an advantage, I'll take anything at this point. (laughs) (laughs) See, and we got a couple more in terms of the hockey things we'll get to before we get to the wrap up, Alex. I, uh, I won't take the whole airtime here. I'm pretty bad for that when it comes to, I get excited. So you you know what I do have, I do have lots of time so we can, we can go for as long as you want. So. Oh, that there. Okay. Well, Alex, take the next topic. We'll get into what we can here. <laughs> I just want to know about the punch out in Pishini. P- Pishini? Close? Closer Pish- than Dave? Pishtani. Pishtani. I, I just want to know your account of it. Because, I mean, as much as we can go and see the TSN highlights of it and they, they play it through, I mean, just okay. Take me through from the moment you're going out on that ice. I'm sure you know that a bloodbath is waiting for you even before the pucks drop. Well, here, here is the scenario, okay? So the World Junior Tournament has completely changed how they get to a champion, okay? Back in our day, it was you played every team, round robin, team with the best record wins the gold medal, okay? So we had an okay tournament, and we got to the final game against the Russians, and the Russians had the worst tournament they, they'd ever had at the World Junior up until that point. And even if they beat us, they could finish no higher than sixth. Okay? And we had to beat them by four goals, I believe, in order to win the gold medal because it got to the math part, you know? And so we were well on our way to achieving that goal. And the game was dirty chippy crazy stuff was going on and uh you know i would say probably we had one of the toughest world junior teams ever assembled assembled and that wasn't our first brawl of the tournament either no it wasn't because we uh we went to a place called engelberg switzerland for three or four days to have like a mini camp before we went to to uh, Slovakia to, to play in the world junior. And we were playing a club team in an outdoor arena exhibition game. We brawled them. And then we brawled the Americans in warm up at the tournament. And then we brawled the Russians uh, in the final game. And so uh, what happened was Everett Santapas 
who was a first-round pick of the Chicago Blackhawks. Him and this Russian guy, during a breakage in the play, you know, were yelling and screaming at each other. One guy in English, the other guy in Russian, so I don't know what the hell was they were talking about. And then all of a sudden, Santa Pass just hauls off and drills this guy in the head with his glove on. So they started fighting, started scuffling. And so we kind of all went over to see what was going on. Russian guy cross-checks me from behind. Steve Chason steps in, starts pounding on the guy that cross-checked me. Next thing you know, we have a, a five-on-five like five five brawl happening. And, uh, of course, I get squared off with the f- biggest fucking guy out on the ice. And, <laughs> Gotta be that way, of course. Yeah. And so I say to him, no fight, no fight. So he stops, and I drilled him. <laughs> him. But then I look up, and both benches are coming at us. And there's gloves, sticks, fucking, like, yard sale everywhere. And everybody's fighting so I don't know how long we brawled for, but it was it had to be a good 45 minutes. And, you know, the refs were trying to break up these fights. Not a chance, right? No. no not so a what do they do? They decide, oh, we're going to turn off the lights and they'll stop fighting. While they turn off the lights, we kept going at it. <laughs> and it was I think it was out of pure exhaustion that we stopped fighting. So then we kind of clean up the ice and and we're all sitting in the dressing room, you know, getting ready to go back out on the ice. And I'll tell you this, back at home in junior hockey, this was happening every night. Yeah, yeah. It was either a line brawl or a bench clearing brawl every night in junior hockey. So we thought, you know, we we're going to go back out on the ice and play. And uh, Dennis McDonald, who was the president of the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association, which is now called Hockey Canada, comes into the dressing room and basically says, all right, boys, get your get your gear packed up. We've been kicked out of the tournament. And we're like, what? What the hell is going on? You know? And so, yeah. So we ended up sleeping on our hockey bags in the Vienna airport and caught a flight back to Canada the next day. And we get to Pearson Airport and we get off the plane and there had to be 300 reporters and cameras and everything, you know, waiting for us when we got off the plane, right? And uh, yeah, the, the rest is sort of history. But, uh, um, but, I, but I love what happened the year after is we went right into Moscow, into the Soviet Union, and they, the Russians had a line of Fedorov, McGilney, and Bure. <laughs> and we beat them 3-2 in the same rank that Paul Henderson scored the goal in 1972. And we, Wild. And we, we won the gold medal right, right in their backyard. So. Wild. Seems and Joe Sackick, Joe Sackick was our fourth-line centerman on that team. <laughs> <laughs> Legendary Joe Sackick. 
legendary mm. Joe Sack. If no one knows who he is, that I don't know why you're even tuning in. Right now. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why you're tuning in right now. None, nonetheless, you know. And there's a funny story that I was even going to dive into that kind of all connects. I think the international play, and it stems from the '98 Nagano Olympics and goes to 2002 Olympics. So with the '98, it was a tough loss for Canada. But I bring this up because I have a funny story about it in regards to actually Walter Gretzky, the late Walter Gretzky, and he took time to have dinner with me when I was. Uh, when I was young and I was participating in one of his tournaments in Brantford called the Walter Gretzky hockey tournament. And it was a second year I was there and we kept in touch through pen pal. And I felt like it was cool, right? I was Walter Gretzky's pen pal talking yeah, to him. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a great, it was the advice that he gave and just kind of all the stories that he wrote down. I wish I kept those letters. I have no idea where they are. My dad must have them somewhere. We've tried to find them. Can't find them. Don't shake your head at me, Alex, too much. Uh, but the stories I'll never forget, but he mentioned how Wayne, sat on the bench shaking his head for an extremely long time. Let's put it that way. And Walter mentioned the reason why Ray Bork went ahead of Wayne to shoot was because of how good of a target shooter he was. That was, that was the explanation that Walter mm. gave the, why Wayne was sitting on the bench and Ray Bork went and uh, Ray Bork's a legend and his Stanley cup win is the most iconic thing that I can remember with a Stanley cup victory. Uh, so it's nothing against Ray Bork, but having Wayne on the bench obviously made a lot of people scratch their heads. Now, of course, that being a tough loss, you transition into 2002 where Salt Lake city. Okay. And, and that is literally the most iconic Olympics in my eyes. No offense to Crosby's golden goal in Vancouver. There's a lot of big moments, uh, but you have, you defeat the States. It's not the first time that you beat the States in the international final. So if that's exciting. I know some us listeners might turn off the show now, uh, <laughs> but that team was amazing, right? Joe Sackick, your fourth line center in the world juniors, uh, Stevie Iserman, Lemieux, yourself, Blake, Lindros, Enemeyer, Shanahan, Korea, McKinnis, you name it. All right. And your goaltending Broder, Balfour and Joseph were the two. And I think Joseph started that tournament yeah. and then Broder took over actually, because Joseph struggled that first game. Yeah. Um, and Olympic watching records were broken, but how good did it feel to put that gold medal around your neck, winning that gold, just be, and also the, the sweetness of what happened in 98 to have that happen in 2002. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was, uh, well, the fact, the simple fact that we hadn't won a gold medal in 50 years of playing hockey at the Olympics was, you know, was mind blowing. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, to have Wayne take over the team and we learned a lot from the Nagano experience, you know, and uh, I think the biggest thing that we learned was, um, make sure that the families were taken care of so that we didn't have to deal with any of the, you know, the stuff. And so basically Wayne hired um, Pat Quinn's daughter to take care of all the families. Okay. And all we had to do was just focus on playing hockey. And, uh, and the team that they assembled was, you know, like, and here I am, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fourth line right winger on that team, but guess who my centerman is? Joe Newendike. Yeah. And guess who my left winger is? Brandon Shanahan. 3,000 NHL points, 1,600 goals <laughs> in the NHL. That's your fourth line for Team Canada at the Olympics. So how the fuck are you going to lose <laughs> with that? You know? You're not. You're not. <laughs> you know? 
And uh, what was interesting was, you know, Mario's back was so bad that, like, he had to have somebody tie his skates before the game. Wow. Like, Stevie Eisenman was basically playing on one leg at the same time. And, uh, but, you know, that, that team was just, it was ridiculous. No, that's a dream team that you put in a video game yeah. together. Yeah. It was, it was incredible. I remember the first practice. I remember the first practice. You know, guys were throwing 100-foot-wide saucer passes <laughs> that were just landing right on your stick, you know? Uh, and then, they, you know, the guys would go in, light up Brodeur and Balfour. And I was just – I said to Paul Korea, who I was standing in line with with the drill, I'm like, are you fucking watching this shit? <laughs> Like, this is fucking, this is crazy. Yeah. This is insane, you know? And was there uh, a buzz in the locker room that was just like, yeah, we got this. Like, <laughs> We're winning. Come on. <laughs> well, what was interesting was, you know, the first three games, we were fucking awful. Like, we were True. terrible. Remember that? We were terrible. Yeah. You know? But I think we knew that the first three games was just all about seeding. So it didn't really matter. Right. And, but that that third game that we played in sort of the round robin against the Czechs was an unbelievable game. Like it was an unbelievable game. And you know, and then soon as soon as the quarterfinals came around, everybody just kind of was like, "Okay, boys, it's time to time to do this, right? <laughs> it's time so, to clock in." Yeah. And uh-huh. you know, we were, and we got a break too when Belarus beat Sweden. Right. And that basically just, you know, we skated right into the final uh, against the U.S. And, uh, you know, I would say uh, the rivalry at that time between Canada and the U.S. was probably at its highest point, you know, because they had beat us in the 96 World Cup of Hockey. And so we needed some revenge. And uh, um, and then, you know. That gold medal game, I got to have a front row seat to one of the greatest Olympic hockey performances I've ever seen that nobody talks about. Joe Sackick had five points. Yes, that's right. That he night. Did. Yeah. He had five points that night, and nobody talks about it. Fourth but line that, center, 90, 1988 World Juniors. <laughs> but that but that was, you know, that's Joe Sackick, you know. You know. Before the game, he goes into the phone booth and puts on his Superman suit and comes out and just, you know, uh, does his thing, you know. Well, he's doing it in Colorado. Were the States your – yeah, no kidding. Was the States your favorite team to play internationally or was there another country that you liked, uh, you know, getting a win against? <laughs> Any one of those teams. Anyone. 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 I feel like Russia was your favorite. <laughs> I feel like Russia. <laughs> <laughs> well, um. Yeah, you know, I, I think, um, you know, uh, when I was 16 years old, they created the program of excellence in Canada, okay? And so when I was 16, uh, I got to play my first international competition, which uh, they had a bunch of regional teams all over Canada, and the Russians came in and did a tour across Canada. So that was my first experience playing international hockey. And, uh, you know, I played for my country 10 times. 
I played under 17, under 18, two world juniors, two world championships, two world cups of hockey and two Olympics. I didn't mention those in my introduction because of, because of this program of excellence that they created. Right. And the reason why they created it was to win that gold medal in 2002. That's why they created the program is because they, they wanted to, uh, you know, enhance our experience internationally, you know, and, uh, you know, playing for your country is the greatest feeling, you know, when you put on that jersey, not only are you playing for yourself and for your team, but you're also playing for 37 million, excuse me, <coughs> oh, 37 million Canadians, <coughs> oh, bless you. Bless you. <laughs> 37 million Canadians, because whenever Canada is playing internationally, the basically the country shuts down for two weeks and everybody's glued to their TV sets, you know, watching, watching us play, you know? And so, uh, you know, there's no greater honor. And then to be considered to be one of the 23 best hockey players in all of Canada is, is, is a pretty big honor. Yes, it is. Cause you can probably form two team Canada teams very easily that would do very well individually themselves i'm curious to see how this upcoming olympics is with that team with oh. mcdavid mckinnon bergeron marchant uh, I'm, yeah. marner i'm missing names actually unless if it's mitch marner it better be the mitch marner from the season not the playoffs uh but nonetheless uh, you know the playing and wearing your jersey I've talked to numerous guests about that. There is nothing literally better uh, than that, except, you know, I know Darren McCarty was always someone to mention just the wing, wing, wing. Uh, that jersey's his life. Uh, yeah. But uh, none, when you have the chance to wear either jersey, uh, like choose a team or your country, a lot of people do certainly pick the country route because, you know, it's the most pride you're able to represent Canada where hockey was made, right? That That's, we are the kings of hockey for a reason. We so you're representing it. every single kid who's ever played put on a pair of skates in Canada, right? That's, that's what it comes down to, you know, is every kid who, who plays hockey in Canada, you know, that's, that's their dream is is. to put on that Jersey. And with all of your experience on ice and off ice, have teams ever come to you to be in any sort of like player management role in the sense of like a player consultant almost, or any other kind of role in the office setting? Digging news, Par. You're digging for news. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe I'm onto something here, eh? <laughs> I'm not an analytics guy, so. No, but you you are good on the people side of it, and maybe that would be a good <laughs> thing for for the people to have on a hockey team, where they'd have a guy that's been there, done that, let alone on the ice, but well, off the ice as well. There's a lot of stupid people that run the game of hockey, <laughs> and it's still a great, and, all... and it's still a great game. Yeah, so you know, I don't. To me, it baffles my mind why, you know, us guys aren't around or involved, you know, in the game, you know. Yeah, it I'll be, it to be. You know, it just blows my mind, you know. Yeah. But how a guy like Kyle Dubas is a general manager for a hockey team absolutely fucking blows my mind, you know. <laughs> honestly. Honestly, <laughs> God. 
Honest to God. Is, gonna laugh, is, it, gonna is it because he's not a former player and it's something that kind of you believe that they should have in that Fair office right. setting? Like a Joe, look at Joe Sackick. I mean, look at Steve Eiserman. Look at the teams these look, guys have built. Stevie's the best GM in hockey. No, like, no offense to Joe. <laughs> like, Joe's great too. But Steve Eiserman made a gem out of Tampa Bay. To, Watch they, what he does with the wings. They need to burn that movie called Moneyball. So nobody can ever watch it again. <laughs> Brad Pitt and Jonah Hill might agree with you. <laughs> yeah. You know, and you know, getting to the conclusion side of things, like I said, we're gonna have to plan a, a part two at some point to have like a five hour edition. You know, maybe we'll, <laughs> maybe when I come to Calgary, you know, we can enjoy some sure. and all that. But you know, there was obviously we're gonna go to the conclusion portion where myself and Alex ask a bonus question, we call it, and it's basically just uh, putting you on the spot on one thing and kind of getting you to answer it. And I kind of going to give my bonus question to two different routes here that I'm going to let you choose to go down. So giving you the floor with it, I'm either going to give you the floor to talk about your own nine comeback with your attempt to come back, which was was phenomenal to watch. And when I I was pulling for you, I saw that shootout goal on, on Long Island or in Calgary against Long Island when you did that. So I was, I thought you were going to get signed, but besides all that, uh, I'm going to give you the floor with that. Or if you wanted to, if you had one funny story to tell, and I'm sure there's numerous, in regards <laughs> to a teammate group outing, dressing room, teammate story, or anything of such, what story would you tell? Those well, are the two questions. I'm going to let you choose which one you want. Sure. Well, um, I'll tell the comeback story because it's okay. good. Okay. Your face lit up when he brought it up. I had a feeling that was the route you were going to go down. <laughs> Um, so, uh, I had started a concrete business in Calgary, uh, shortly after I moved back to Calgary and, uh, the recession hit, hit us hard and wiped out, wiped out my business. And so, uh, I was, I was in the process of writing the book and the book was about to come out in October and, uh, in February, uh, of, of that year that was leading to the September, you know, comeback. Um, you know, I was like, I was 225 pounds. I was, you know, out of shape and, you know, I left the game, you know, not the way that I wanted to leave the game. And so my, my ex-wife at the time, you know, we were sitting at the kitchen table and I said to her, I said, uh, think I'm going to make a comeback. (laughs) What are you talking about? I said, yeah, I think I'm going to, I'm going to make a comeback. I'm going to try and play one more year in the NHL. And she's like, look at at me. Like Like you have two heads. Yeah. So anyways, next day I hired a trainer. I hired a nutritionist and, you know, I started down this road, down, down this path. So about, I think it might have been a month before training camp, I was at home and my phone rings and it's Daryl Sutter. And Daryl's like, uh, he goes, hearing rumors about you getting in wicked shape and, you know, you're, you're trying to get it reinstated, you know, by the NHL. How's that going and all that? And I said, well, you go, I don't, I don't know you know, if I'm going to get reinstated before training camp or not. 
And he said, well, if you do, we would love for you to come to training camp. Okay. So, um, you know, I'm going through the process of reinstatement and, uh, you know, the night before training camp, I'm in Phoenix, Arizona, meeting with Gary Bettman and Bill Daly because all that shit was going on in Phoenix at the time. Right. And, uh, um, so I sit down with Gary and, uh, you know, he says, love everything you've done and, you know, how you turn your life around. And he says, I'm, I'm going to reinstate you. So I'm like fucking scrambling, trying to find a flight back to Calgary so that I could get to training camp the next day. Right. So I, I, I managed to get on a flight and uh, in between connections, I called Daryl and I said, Daryl, I'll be, I'll be at training camp in the morning. He's like, really? He said, yeah, I got reinstated. So, so it was weird because, you know, I, I'd driven down to the saddle dome. I don't know how many times in my career. And, uh, you know, I show up at training camp and, uh, you know, I do the fitness test and out of the 52 guys that were, uh, at camp kids that were like half my age. Okay. I finished 11th out of the 52 guys that were at training camp. So I lost 45 pounds in nine months. Okay. And my body fat went from like 22% to like eight. Wow. You know, and, uh, and, and so, you know, I made an impression at the fitness desk that I was here for business. Right. I was, I was back, you know? So I, so I get into this exhibition game and, uh, you know, the saddle dome is like sold out for an exhibition game, like <laughs> sold, sold out. And the game was really weird, you know, because uh, it kind of went back and forth and, and the game goes into overtime. Okay. And we get a power play in overtime. And right at the end of overtime, Ole Okunen gets a, gets a like chance and he shoots the puck in the net. Okay. And instead of the red light going on, the green light goes on because he ran out of time. So sets the stage for this, for this redemption for, you know, for everything. Right. So I'm sitting on the bench and in, in Sutter style, (laughs) I get this fucking boot up my ass and I turn around and it's, it's Brent Sutter, who was coaching the flames at the time. And he said, you're going to shoot second in the shootout. Okay. So first two guys go in and they miss. And so it sets the stage for this, you know, for this, (laughs) this story. Yeah, yeah. So I jump on the ice and I start fucking laughing. <laughs> right? Because I'm like, I if you wrote a Hollywood fucking script like this, <laughs> they would throw it out. Right? They would throw it out. Yeah. So after I start laughing, I say to myself, Well, fuck, I gotta score now. Right? <laughs> you know? No kidding. You know. And I'm a shooter, right? I'm a shooter on breakaways. Always been a shooter on breakaways. And my favorite was five hole. 
right? Saw you scoring Patrick Wall like that a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but now every fucking goalie's a butterfly goalie. So there's no five hole, right? Yeah. So I go in with this idea that I'm going to shoot low stick on the blocker side, right? So I pick up the puck at center ice, and, and as I'm coming over the blue line, I pick my head up, and the goalie's already got that blocked off. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I got to improvise now, right? So I go in, I fake the shot. He fucking, uh, you, know, <laughs> fake fish, you know, fakes the hook. And then I just go right around him and I shoot it in the net and the whole entire saddle dome just fucking goes absolute batshit crazy. Yes, they do. Yeah. And, you know, I was sort of in the moment, so I didn't see, you know, what was going on in the stands. And uh, so after the game, like all my kids are there, like three of my kids have never seen me play in the NHL, right? or remember me playing in the NHL. And then my wife at the time comes up to me and she goes, do you realize that there was grown men crying in the stands when you scored that goal? And I was uh-uh. like, really? <laughs> you know? So I get home and I log on to my computer and I log into YouTube and I see all of these, you know, wow. these people who have, you know, and so I got the whole full, you know, spectrum. And, and you know what, um, as much as I wanted to play another season in the NHL, when that goal went in, they could open up the Zamboni gate. I could have jumped in my truck and went home and I would have been, you know, happy. Um, but you know, it was, it was a, an amazing two weeks. Um, you know, I got all my credibility back that I had lost, you know, when I left the game, I got some redemption, and then sure enough, a month later, my book comes out and my life, you know, completely takes a, you know, a different detour and a different path. And, and uh, but I needed to come back in order to, you know, to get back all that stuff that I sort of lost at the end of my career. And so, yeah, it was an amazing, it was an amazing time. That's the best uh, bonus question answer ever. Yeah. Or I don't know how you want to make up with that one, but uh, you're up. (laughs) Nah, we may as well just go with the other half of your question. Uh, When you think of funny off ice stories with the guys in the locker room, what are some of the uh, the memories that come to the top of your head? Oh man, like there's there's too many to just nail it down to one thing. How about the best prank done from uh, one of your teammates? Oh. (laughs) <laughs> that doesn't narrow it down either does there's, it there's, there's so i thought many. you were gonna go with like his favorite not why he chose four but, but you know what here's the thing i would say my whole entire experience in the 15 years that i played in the nhl is what i remember the most because wow that's a good every single today. every single day of my life i was told i was too small that i was never gonna make it okay and not only did I play more than one NHL game, I played a thousand. Yeah. And for 15 years, I got to do something that I absolutely love to do. And they actually paid me to do it because I would have done it for free, you know? Wow. And, and, and because of that, I had all these 
incredible winning experiences in the game. And, uh, you know, from the world junior to, you know, even winning a Turner cup in, in the minor leagues, you know, like, um, the, the reason why we play the game, the reason why you sign an NHL contract and it doesn't say it in the contract, but you're paid to win. Okay. You're paid to win. But tell some other teams that are currently active that Theo, please. Right. Okay. Right. <laughs> and, and to me, my whole entire life has been about winning. Right. And it's those winning situations that, you know, that, that have carried me through my whole entire life. Right. Cause, cause I get addicted to the process of winning in whatever way, shape or form. And so, uh, you know, how ironic is it that I'm, you know, the face of the biggest epidemic on the planet, which is trauma, mental health and addiction. Right. And, and, I don't feel out of place. I feel very comfortable in this space because of all of these experiences that I've had in my life. And I know how to build teams. Okay. And I'm building the greatest team ever assembled in the history of our planet. And that's people who suffer from mental illness. Right. And, and so I know what to do. You know, I know what to do and I know what Wayne would do. I know what Mario would do. I know what Joe would do because I learned from those guys, right? I got to sit beside them. I got to pick their brain. I got to watch them and see how they reacted with different people and different organizations and, and all that stuff. And so, um, yeah, like, (laughs) you know, I lived the dream. I lived every Canadian kid's dream who, you know, dreams of playing in the NHL. And did it exceed my expectations? 100%. You know, what I experienced, you know, not a lot of guys have experienced what I've experienced, right? And and so, you know, if you ask me about one story, I have 10 million stories, you know? And, and uh, you know... It's funny because, you know, the last thing in the process that happens when you win, they give you a ring and they put a medal around your neck. What I love is all the stuff in between that leads you to that place. And as a retired athlete, guess what? People want me to come to their events and talk about the middle part. Yeah. Right? And so that's why I cherish all of the process that happened along the way to get to those places where they put the metal around your neck, because that's what matters the most. Doesn't, doesn't matter. And I'll say this one last thing. I would trade my world junior, my Stanley cup, my gold medal, my Canada cup. I would trade all of it right now to change one person's life because that's the real, this is the real reason why I went through the sexual abuse was to get to this place and, and step into my true purpose in life. And that's to 
help as many people as I possibly can overcome the biggest epidemic on the planet. Well said. Right? Yep. Because I think that's why we're all here. We're all here to help each other. That's right. right? We're all here. And those negative experiences that we have in our life are teaching moments. Right? Pain is the greatest motivator that we have for change. Right? And it's and it's our job and our duty when somebody's at the lowest point of their life is to be there for them and help them get to the other side. Fantastic. Part two great answers. Okay. He answered your question perfectly there. Just so you, just in case you're you're (laughs) looking for player stories, but we got a fantastic answer there. Now, Mm -hmm. Theo, it's been an absolute treasure. Literally. I'm not kidding. I love part twos. We do a lot of part twos in the show. with A lot of the bigger guests love to connect sometime soon. Uh, I hope to travel more when this uh, lockdown (laughs) 17.7 is done in Ontario. Uh, You know, and if uh, we do plan as a, as a business to go to the different Canadian cities to see games, uh, it'd be nice if we, uh, you know, got awesome nice to get in touch uh, at that time as well and uh, yeah. certainly been awesome to have you on and all the experiences you shared off the ice and on the ice we went a little bit extended as we uh, did talk off air that does happen on podcasts and uh, oh, yeah. uh, myself yeah. and Alex appreciate it now before uh, we officially bye to you Alex I'll let you uh, say your goodbyes yeah Theo man just thank you for everything that you're doing keep advocating it but i mean i don't think me telling you to keep doing it's gonna stop you or or gonna change what you're doing you know you're making differences in lives and that's really important to everybody and uh thank you for coming on and uh, letting the people know a little bit about what they can do to help or find help if they do choose that they need it absolutely well it's been pleasure and honor to be with you guys and uh you know i always love talking hockey and i love talking trauma mental health and addiction too at the same time so Definitely. You know, and I even saw your crib tour on YouTube. Just so you know, your house tour, your house. Oh, yeah. <laughs> your dog, Coco, right? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah, we, We've added one more. His name is Kuma. So Kuma. we actually just got a dog named Blaze. So it's, it's oh, nice. Blaze. Yeah. It's uh, people take that in a marijuana way. So it's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, nonetheless, again, thank you, Theo. And of course you can find Theo has a, a podcast. He has a blog. He has a website, theoflurry.life uh, there. You can search him on Google. You can reach out to me if you want to get connected to him. Uh, there's ways that I can reach out if you uh, have any uh, particular, of course, with yeah, and if you're, if you're a listener and you're struggling and you, you got nobody to talk to reach out to me on social media. I'm on all, all the platforms and uh, yeah. I'll, I'll get back to you within, within a few hours for sure. So awesome. See the availability is there for the resources. And again, make sure you like, follow and subscribe and all the games for show platforms as well. Uh, this has been a fantastic experience again, Theo thumbs up. Uh, this has been an absolute treat. So thank you again. Yeah. Uh, Thanks, guys. Going to the conclusion here. I'm going to remind everyone to keep the sticks on the ice, swing your bats, catch your touchdowns, drain your threes and shoot your shots. Booyah.